I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Move Philadelphia made headlines in 1978, when police and Move members ended up in a prolonged siege and a gunfire exchange that left a police officer dead. They hit their headlines again in 1985, when a confrontation with the authorities became even more deadly, after an explosive device was dropped on their property. The events led many to understand the organisation as a black liberation group, who were the victims of a racist system. The latter is hardly debatable but credible stories from a multitude of former members portray MOVE as never truly being about black liberation at all. Instead, they characterise it as a cult. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of physical assault, child abuse and suicide, and there's a little coarse language. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening to. Vincent Lopez Leaphart was the fourth of ten children, six boys and four girls, born to Frederick and Lenny May Leaphart on the 26th of July 1931. Frederick and Lenny May were part of the great migration of 1.5 million African Americans who moved north from the Deep South between the World Wars, and their families had made the migration from Atlanta, Georgia, in the late 1920s. Frederick hung wallpaper and worked as a handyman, while Lenny May looked after the children in their drafty rented house in Mantua, a working-class neighbourhood of West Philadelphia. The family attended what would become the 59th Street Baptist Church, a black church then run out of a rented storefront by the revivalist Reverend John H. Williams. Author Richard Kent Evans' book, Move and American Religion, is a key source for much of this information, and is an interesting read if you're looking to delve into the subject further though it should be noted that the author intentionally privileges Move's own sources where they conflict with those of critics. Evans writes about the melting pot of religious influence in Philadelphia at the time. Driven by the Great Migration, but also the influx of migrants from the Caribbean and South America, living alongside black Muslim groups like the Nation of Islam. He draws some parallels between the teachings of Father Divine, who claimed to be God in the flesh, and the eventual teachings of Vincent Leaphart's movement. 
Father Divine's Peace Mission Movement had its headquarters in Philadelphia when Vincent was 11 years old, though there's no indication of a direct connection with the Leaphearts. This was a time of heartache within the Leaphart family, as Vincent's eldest brother died from a gunshot wound related to gang violence at the age of just 16. Vincent was struggling with his schooling and tested poorly on IQ, but as we've discussed in this podcast before, that doesn't necessarily mean much. By all accounts, he was far more intelligent than his IQ score might suggest, though he wasn't great at reading and writing. He dropped out of school when he was 16, and Craig R. McCoy reported for the Philadelphia Inquirer that he was arrested at 17 for stealing a car and an armed hold-up. A few years later, his mother Lenny May passed away at the age of 43. Soon after this, Vincent joined the army and served in the Korean War. In March 1961, 29-year-old Vincent married 29-year-old Dorothy Clark. A friend of the couple told an Inquirer reporter that Vincent was a very smooth dresser. He looked nice, tailored clothes, a nice suit, decent shoes. Dorothy described him as a very deep thinker who always tried to be just and fair and who was a leader and not a follower. The couple were unable to have children and eventually separated after Dorothy claimed her husband had physically assaulted her on two occasions. Dorothy had also joined the Kingdom of Yahweh, and Vincent wasn't a fan. That sect was founded by a man named Joe Jeffers, who the Los Angeles Times described as a huckster, jailbird and white supremacist. A few years later, he would be found guilty of swindling his followers of over $200,000 in 13 counts of mail fraud. In the late 1960s, Vincent Leapart began locking himself away from his friends and family to develop his own teachings, and would emerge with a new name, John Africa. Martin Luther King was assassinated in April 1968, and after the Black Panthers were infiltrated by the FBI, their 21-year-old leader Fred Hampton was shot and killed in his bed in December 1969. The coroner found that his death and that of fellow Panther Mark Clark were justifiable homicides by the police, and it took another two decades for a civil lawsuit to be settled with substantial payments from the government to survivors and relatives of Hampton and Clark. This was the political landscape when in the early 1970s Vincent met 24-year-old academic Donald Glassie. Donald had recently completed his master's degree with a thesis about public housing projects and the participation of the poor, and was at a stage in life where he was ready to dedicate himself to something worthy. He liked what he heard of Vincent's various philosophies, and encouraged him to write them down. When he found out that Vincent wasn't so great with writing... Donald, an educated white man, figured he could help. Donald moved in with Vincent at the housing cooperative where he was living, and an intense period of listening and writing followed over the next 12 months. What came out was a 300-page book that would come to be known as The Guidelines of John Africa, espousing Vincent's belief system and positioning the new John Africa as a prophet and a so-called authority on life. The contents provided an answer across all aspects of existence to the evils of the system. Some of the answers proved incredibly rigid, and when Donald and Vincent refused to use cockroach spray in their apartment for fear of harming their dogs, the other co-op members weren't so happy about the resulting infestation across the building. One of three members who confronted Vincent about the problem told the Philadelphia Inquirer that it was the first time he'd seen the man be hostile. Quote, He said, in effect, if you're not with me, you're against me. In 1973, the co-op commenced eviction proceedings. The guidelines, also known as Moves Bible, converted a number of new followers, who joined Vincent and Donald along with a number of Vincent's family members in changing their surname to Africa to belong to the group now known as Move. Vincent Leapart had started calling himself John Africa, and taught that the assumed surname for members was in recognition of the continent where life originated. John Africa had a former Black Panther as one of his earliest followers, a man named Delbert Orr, who had been evading FBI warrants until he got in a car accident and came across John Africa's teachings during his recovery. 
he took on the new name Delbert Africa to join MOVE. In joining, Delbert renounced the teachings of the Black Panthers, which included Maoist socialism, as theoretical scientific nonsense, now that he was fully invested in a totally different kind of revolution, according to Richard Kent Evans. Delbert was appointed as MOVE's Minister for Confrontation and Security. Richard Kent Evans wrote, The people who found their way to MOVE were people who had given up on finding solutions to the world's problems. They found in the teachings of John Africa an alternative reality and a reordered cosmos. After Vincent and Donald left the housing co-op, the early group pulled their resources to purchase a property in Powelton Village to be known as the house that John Africa built. Soon they started squatting in the attached, abandoned, next-door property as well. They lived with a number of dogs behind a sign that said, Long Live John Africa, and eventually built high walls around the property. There were MOVE members living in other properties as well, and MOVE supporters spread more widely, who were on the periphery of the organisation, but not considered truly invested. MOVE members lived a simple life, with few clothes or personal possessions. They rejected most forms of technology, cooked over a fire and slept on the floor. They ate a so-called natural diet of raw vegetables, grains, rice and beans. Interestingly, this was an aspect of the teachings in the Kingdom of Yahweh that the then Vincent had eschewed when his wife was following it. John Africa, however, believed that people and animals should be considered equals, and MOVE members demonstrated outside the zoo and pet stores for the animals to be set free. In the early days, MOVE invited members of the public into the Powelton Village home to listen to readings of the guidelines of John Africa. By 1974, the group consisted of about two dozen people, who believed their way of life in the house that John Africa built was totally outside of the system and the only true way to escape its evils. Illnesses were framed as the body's allergic response to the system, which could be overcome by changes in exercise and diet. Richard Kent Evans writes that, according to the guidelines, there was one other person besides John Africa who lived in total harmony with natural law, Jesus of Nazareth. John Africa taught that the next generation of children who were born into MOVE were born outside of the system, and so would be able to achieve a life in harmony with nature as John had. Everyone else needed to always be working towards achieving this perfection through their strict diet and through exercise and physical labour. Although followers got up before dawn to run for at least an hour, unlike many of the high-demand groups we've looked at, MOVE believed that getting enough sleep was important for their physical health. They didn't drink, smoke or do any drugs. They also didn't bathe. MOVE children were not given a formal education and were not taught to read or write. MOVE members were expected to be heterosexual, with a MOVE marriage to last for life, in spite of John's own separation from his wife, and couples were not to use contraception. John Africa taught that abortion was murder and homosexuality a perversion. Former MOVE member Valerie Janet Brown told the Philadelphia Inquirer that births were totally natural, and the mother was to sever the umbilical cord with her teeth before licking the newborn baby clean. She said that her eldest daughter was doing 200 to 400 push-ups a day by the age of three. Members would follow John Africa's directions to disrupt various talks and meetings and would often become confrontational with police. Many arrests took place over the coming years, with MOVE members arrested 142 times in 1975 alone. John Africa was never around to risk getting arrested himself. Residents at the housing co-op that had ousted Vince and Donald said that they were being harassed by MOVE members, and other neighbours reported feeling threatened by them as well. In 1975, MOVE member Jerry Africa received three years probation for threatening the wife and children of one of the co-op members. Another former co-op resident told the Philadelphia Inquirer, Some people insist on seeing MOVE as the victim of racism and police brutality and they were not interested in listening to the people whose persons had been threatened, whose children had been threatened, whose property had been threatened, who were living literally under the move gun. For us, it was horrible. 
And Dino R. Ward was the father of Michael Moses Ward and was already separated from Michael's mother Rhonda when she came across Move. And Dino told Philadelphia Magazine that one day in the early 1970s, when he went to pick up Michael from Rhonda's mother's place, he was told that she no longer lived there and was now with Move. Quote, I went to the Powelton Move house, almost went to blows with John Africa. Then a guy came out with a hatchet, so I got out of there. Later, Rhonda told me that her new family was Move, that John Africa was Mike's father, that I could forget any involvement. Within Move, Michael became known as Birdie Africa. And Dino says he made another attempt to see his son sometime later. Quote, In the mid-70s, I went to the Powelton house. I tried to initiate conversation, and somebody shot at me. I took off running, wouldn't see my son for another ten years. Ed Pilkington reported for The Guardian that in 1976, police were called out to the move property around a disturbance. And during a physical confrontation with residents, Janine Africa was shoved and her three-week-old baby, named Life, was knocked to the ground. Janine told the reporter that he died in her arms later that day of injuries to his skull. The lawyer of a former MOVE member who later spoke to Hank Klibanoff for the Philadelphia Inquirer disputed this and said that the child had died of natural causes and that the death could have been prevented if medical attention had been sought for him. The Philadelphia Daily News reported that around Christmas of 1976, a man named Ted Williamson was brutally beaten by John Africa, who then ordered other MOVE members to line up and assault the man as well. Ted had been drawn to John Africa's writings, but had tried to disengage with MOVE when he became conflicted over the weapons the group was amassing. Following the beating, MOVE reportedly kept him captive in the Powelton Village house for three days until he convinced someone to let him have some air. He managed to escape to hospital where he was treated for his injuries, and he had lost his sight in one eye. Sometime after the ordeal, he spent six weeks in a psychiatric ward. Then on the 24th of May 1977, Ted came into contact with a 30,000 volt power line. In what was assumed to be the result of self-inflicted injuries, the 30-year-old died 18 days later. Move members were known to use a bullhorn to share their messages at full volume any hour of night or day, and were photographed with sawn-off shotguns guarding their compound as they did so. Passers-by spoke of being harassed with crude language, and the cockroach infestation problem had followed them, with the now four dozen dogs they lived with. It had also propagated an issue with rats. By 1977, Donald Glassy had become less enamoured with the man he'd formerly looked up to as a messiah. As Craig R. McCoy reported for the Philadelphia Inquirer, Special Agent Wasserluck of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, or ATF, wrote in an early report after speaking with Donald, quote, Glassy stated that John Africa had a Charles Manson-type grip on MOVE members and that they had now ceased to function as free-thinking individuals. He was firmly convinced that MOVE members would kill if ordered by John Africa. Donald, like Ted Williamson, had become concerned that the group was stockpiling weapons. Donald Glassy was convinced to turn informant, and along with another disaffected supporter, brought the ATF 20 bombs along with high-powered rifles, shotguns, a handgun and other bomb parts. When the police couldn't locate John Africa to arrest him, Donald pretended that his own absence had been due to an arrest, and returned to the fold to gain intel. In September 1977, a federal grand jury indicted 10 MOVE members on bomb plot and conspiracy charges. But once again, John Africa couldn't be located to be served with the warrant. When MOVE members failed to respond to an eviction order from the city, in March 1978, authorities imposed a blockade and cut off all food and water into the compound. A compromise was reached on the 3rd of May, with a 1 August deadline for MOVE members to peacefully exit the building but MOVE violated the agreement when they didn't vacate by the deadline. By the 8th of August 1978, the siege had been going for 56 days when police advanced on the Powelton Village property, and a shootout ensued. 18 officers and firefighters were injured in the gunfire, and 52-year-old Philadelphia police officer James Ramp was killed. 
Philadelphia Inquirer journalist Kitty Caparella had previously written about a move plot to blow up US embassies if they weren't left alone by the authorities. And she documented 11 times that move residents were requested to surrender between 6am and quarter past 8 on the 8th of August. Not just by the police either, but by Charles Devlin of the Cardinals Commission on Human Relations and by the chair of the Citywide Black Coalition for Human Rights, Walt Palmer. Next, a bulldozer was sent in to tear down the compound's fortifications, and the police turned to tear gas. Following the tear gas, authorities directed high-pressure hoses on the basement of the building, where the residents were holed up, and it was during the deluge of water that the shot that killed Officer Ramp was fired. Eventually, the MOVE members, including 11 children under the age of 13, were forced out by the rising water, and the adults were violently arrested by police. John Africa was not one of them. The media captured former Black Panther Delbert Africa being kicked and beaten while his hands were in the air. Three police officers were charged after the incident, and though it was all caught on camera, a judge dismissed the charges against them. Nine MOVE members, including Delbert Africa, were convicted of third-degree murder for the death of Officer James Ramp, and after a 19-week trial were sentenced to 30 to 100 years in prison. MOVE claimed that none of their residents had fired any shots, and that the police had accidentally killed one of their own. When ballistics matched bullets that killed James Ramp and injured other officers to a rifle found in the MOVE compound, they claimed that it had been planted. A MOVE statement from 2017 claims that witnesses saw the shots coming from a different address, and that the bullet struck James Ramp from a downward angle, so couldn't have come from them in the basement. Kitty Caparella was there on the day with Daily News photographer Norman Lono and witnessed gunfire coming from inside the move cellar. Eleven rifles and handguns and 2,000 rounds of ammunition were recovered from the property. The 2017 statement from Move includes, quote, The August 8, 1978 police attack on Move followed years of police brutality against Move and was a major military operation carried out by the Philadelphia Police Department under orders of then-Mayor Frank Rizzo. Mayor Rizzo's reputation for racism and brutality was and is well known. It followed him up through the ranks of the police department to the police commissioner's office to the mayor's office. Frank Rizzo was a former police commissioner elected mayor in 1971. And during his second term, Philadelphia Inquirer reporters William K. Maramo and John Newman wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning four-part series entitled The Homicide Files that covered the Philadelphia Police Department's patterns of police brutality and disregard for constitutional rights. Allegations of racism, discrimination and harassment followed the man's tenure, and it's easy to see that this climate fed into the confrontation that August day. The incredibly long sentences of what became known as the Move 9, when it couldn't ever really be confirmed who shot the gun that killed Officer Ramp, can hardly be seen outside of the lens of a racist system. Shockingly, the worst of the tensions between Move and the authorities was yet to come. The Powelton Village property was hastily destroyed by order of Mayor Frank Rizzo, which seems an odd choice considering the forthcoming trial, and perhaps the need for the scene to be further examined. After a few years, the main move compound shifted to 6221 Osage Avenue, which was the residence of John Africa's sister Louise James. After three years evading the authorities, John Africa was arrested on federal charges of rioting and bomb-making but he managed to beat the charges, with a federal jury acquitting him on the 22nd of July 1981. For his followers, this was further proof of John Africa's godlike status, and it seemed to feed into his own ego as well. Former MOVE supporter Tony Allen documents on his blog called The Anti-MOVE Mumia Blog that former MOVE member William Whitney Smith would have been set to testify at the trial, but instead went missing in late 1979, before the 37-year-old's body was discovered in the Schuylkill River. The incident was ruled a death by suicide. Nevertheless, Prosecutor L. Mark Durant was shocked that with the mountains of evidence they had, the case didn't go their way. He later told the Philadelphia Inquirer, 
It was the only case I ever lost as a prosecutor. It was also the strongest case I ever had. Louise James, John Africa's sister, told the police that in October 1983, John had ordered her son Frank to beat her, after she refused to read out a letter filled with obscenities attacking her devotion to move. Frank hit his mother until she threw up, then covered her face with a pillow and asked John whether he wanted her cycled, referring to the move word for death. Apparently John said, no, not at this time. According to the report, this wasn't the first time Frank had been ordered by John Africa to beat his own mother. At the Osage Avenue house, MOVE members erected high fences, fortified the property and continued their barrage of expletives over loudspeakers at all hours. Residents in the black middle-class neighbourhood said that the new neighbours had been friendly at first, allowing their children to play together but that they soon stopped letting the move kids mix with the neighbourhood children and locked them away in the compound. This may have been related to investigations around child neglect. Neighbours testified in a later hearing how the ongoing, unpredictable, amplified obscenities left them feeling helpless in their own homes. Move then built what was referred to as a bunker on top of their building, with holes that were understood to be embrasures through which guns could be fired. Crisis negotiator Benny Swans testified that his impression was that MOVE members were trying to force the residents into demanding the city take action to prompt another confrontation with authorities. And neighbours did file complaints of harassment, child neglect and sanitation problems. Local resident Oris Buck Thompson told Time magazine that MOVE members were set on their goal to get the MOVE 9 out of prison and, quote, They said they'd been through the courts, but the only way to get them out of jail was through confrontation. In January 1984, Wilson Good was elected as Philadelphia's first African-American mayor. On the 3rd of May, police attended the MOVE residence when a hooded member was observed on the roof of the building with a shotgun, and officers surrounded the building in a two-hour standoff. The event seems to have de-escalated, with police never entering the building or making any arrests. Mayor Good was reported to have said in response to sanitation complaints that it was better to have dirt and some smell than to have blood. But the situation continued to deteriorate, and Mayor Good's attempts at negotiation all failed. Crisis intervention worker Bob Owens told Time magazine, They don't really even understand the concept of negotiation. Their attitude was that of a child. We make our demands and we stand on them. Jerry Africa sent a message to the mayor on behalf of MOVE, quote, We are ready for you. Come and get us. With a block of local residents holding a press conference to demand action from the city on the 30th of April 1985, eventually Mayor Wilson Good gave the order to have the MOVE people evicted from the Osage Avenue residence. The probable cause affidavit included reports from neighbours that, quote, They heard MOVE members say over the loudspeakers that they had wired the entire block with explosives and that if any neighbourhood resident speaks with the press or if the police take action against MOVE, MOVE will blow up the entire block. Considering this and the events of 1978, the authorities expected things might escalate and on the 12th of May they asked surrounding Osage Avenue residents to vacate their homes, telling them they'd be able to return soon. Most took enough belongings for an overnight absence. On the 13th of May, hundreds of heavily armed police descended on the area. Before they went in, Mayor Good said, I am totally convinced the group is bent on violent confrontation. I pray to Almighty God the children will not be hurt. Police demanded that the MOVE residents exit the building within 15 minutes and then commenced use of a high-pressure water barrage tactic again as cover for units to direct tear gas into the property. An exchange of gunfire followed, with reports of at least 10,000 rounds of ammunition shot by the authorities over the next 90 minutes. A later commission of inquiry made clear that no automatic weapons were ever found inside the MOVE house, but there were other firearms present. Police said MOVE members had a high ground advantage from the bunker on top of the building. Local community members and neighbours also tried to coax the MOVE members out of the house, but to no avail. The authorities were well aware that there were children inside the property, 
which makes what they did next even more incredible. A police helicopter flew overhead and then dropped two pounds of Tovex and C4 explosives with a 45-second fuse on the roof of the house. Authorities said the idea was to dislodge the bunker and that they had expected any subsequent fire could be controlled. As local resident Steve Harmon said to the New York Times, Drop a bomb on a residential area? I never in my life heard of that. It's like Vietnam. The resulting blast was felt by news crews covering the events nearby, but the bunker remained intact. As fire spread throughout the building, the water hoses were no longer active. Fire Commissioner William Richmond recounted at a later hearing that Police Commissioner George Sambor suggested to him that they should let the bunker burn to eliminate that high ground advantage and the tactical advantage of the bunker. Firefighters who were on standby were not directed to contain the blaze until an hour later, when it was totally out of control. The fire spread throughout the neighbouring houses at Osage Avenue, and residents watched on television as their homes and all their belongings were left to go up in flames. 61 homes were destroyed, leaving over 250 people homeless. Mayor Wilson Good, who was following the televised events from City Hall, gave an order to put the fire out. Fire Commissioner William Richmond was adamant that he never received that order. The New York Times reported that, quote, Firefighters delayed attempts to battle the blaze for at least an hour out of fear that they would become targets of any surviving members of the heavily armed group. The idea that all of these properties, along with the possessions of so many uninvolved neighbours, would be allowed to burn by Philadelphia authorities while fire trucks stood by is clearly astounding. And there are many who are understandably convinced that this never would have been allowed to happen in a white neighbourhood. Down in the garage of 6221, the women and children were hiding under wet blankets and trying to avoid the smoke and tear gas that was now enveloping the property. Birdie Africa later claimed that members tried to exit the garage and leave the property, and police officers testified to hearing some members saying that they were coming out from the back alley behind the house. Police claimed that shots then came from a move man, though Birdie Africa stated that none of them had weapons at that point, but that he could hear shots coming from outside so they couldn't leave the building. Two of the officers behind the building at the time had been involved in the beating of Delbert Africa in the 1978 incident. The footage still exists if you should ever want to view it, and Jason Oster's 2013 documentary Let the Fire Burn is worth a watch if you're interested in seeing coverage from this time and some of the perspectives that came out at the later Commission of Inquiry into the incident. Ultimately, 30-year-old Ramona Africa and 13-year-old Birdie Africa were the only two members to emerge from 6221 Osage Avenue alive. Five children, including Delbert Africa's 13-year-old daughter, and six adults, died in the fire. One of the adults was 53-year-old John Africa. Mayor Wilson Good made a statement following the incident which included, quote, As mayor of this city, I accept full and total responsibility. He continued, There was no way to avoid it, no way to extract ourselves from that situation except by armed confrontation. The Red Cross set up an emergency shelter at St Carthage Roman Catholic Church, which the mayor visited and there made a promise to rebuild all of the homes at no cost to the residents. Officer James Berghire, who had carried Birdie Africa from the fire, resigned from the force with PTSD, and another officer who had been on the ground that day later died by suicide. After public hearings, the commission into the incident released a report in March 1986 highly critical of the events. It also included condemnation of the city's policy of appeasement and Mayor Goods policy of non-confrontation and avoidance in the period prior to 13 May, which gave the message to move residents that they had a, quote, continued right to exist above the law. Mayor Good delivered an eight-minute televised apology that included, quote, For me personally, May 13 was the most tragic day in my life. Each day I live with its memories. I think often of the five children and six adults who lost their lives, 
I wish that May 13 had never happened, but it did, and I am sorry for that. Referring to the 1978 events, he said, I was determined that this time there would be no injury or loss of life. I thought the plan would work. We all know it did not. In trying to save lives, lives were lost. In attempting to rescue a neighbourhood, it was destroyed by fire. In May 1988, a Philadelphia grand jury cleared those involved of criminal liability for the results of their decisions. Though the jury report was damning in finding the authorities' behaviour morally reprehensible, declaring that they had acted with cowardice and incompetence. The parents of the MOVE children killed in the fire eventually received a settlement of $2.5 million from a civil suit, and the Osage Avenue houses were rebuilt, but the original contractor ended up in jail for pocketing over $100,000 worth of funds intended for construction. Ongoing shoddy workmanship meant that the city paid out a number of residents in 2000, rather than pumping more money into the doomed project. Birdie Africa, the 13-year-old survivor of the 1985 fire, was released into the care of his father and Dino Ward, and changed his name back to Michael Moses Ward. He was granted $1.5 million in restitution from the government, grew up to drive trucks, never spoke with Ramona Africa again, and passed away suddenly in 2013 at the age of 41. In 1988, Move had heard word that Steven Spielberg was working on a film about Michael's experiences, and Ramona Africa wrote the film director a letter dated the 18th of October, all in caps, which was common to Move correspondence. It referred to a mysterious organisation known as M1 and included the following. Move's got our eye fixed on you, Spielberg. We're watching you, watching what you're doing with this movie, and we're not the only ones watching you either. M1 will also be watching you. M1 will be monitoring your portrayal of the Move organisation in this movie you're producing. M1 is a highly skilled, expertly trained core of revolutionaries absolutely committed to watching over the Move organisation. M1 has dedicated their lives to revolution. M1 does not talk or reason. They act. They effectively deal with any obstacles put in the revolution's path. Move has no contact with M1. We don't even know their names, as they don't make contact with us. It's not necessary. M1's activity is to protect Move, and they carry this activity out with strategic expertise, as all those who have attempted to hurt this organisation are being effectively dealt with. Spielberg never did make the film. A few people still believe today that John Africa wasn't really killed in the Osage Avenue fire, and it certainly wasn't his style to be in the midst of risky group actions. While he usually lived elsewhere, he did visit 6221 for meetings and inspections, so it seems like a matter of poor timing on his part. But in the leadership vacuum he left, others believe that things began to go even more awry. After serving seven years in prison for rioting and conspiracy charges, Ramona Africa continued as MOVE's Minister for Information and as its public-facing spokesperson, alongside Pam Africa, MOVE's Minister for Confrontation. But behind the scenes, Sue, also known as Ria, and Alberta, or Bert, Africa, had stepped into leadership internally, according to numerous former members. Alberta was released from prison in 1988, and as the widow of John Africa, felt that she had a claim to leadership. Sue lost her nine-year-old child to the 1985 fire while she was in jail for charges of rioting, and when she was released in 1992, she threw her support behind Alberta. Former second-generation MOVE member Mike Africa Jr. said of the two on his podcast last year, I've seen some insane manipulations, just ways to control people. For a period, the group seemed to go quiet, but may have become more inward-facing during this period. Ramona Africa spoke at left-wing events around the world and brought her speaker fees back to the organisation, and the group bought another property with some of the proceeds of the court settlement. On the surface, they continued to advocate for the release of the Move 9 and Mumia Abu-Jamal, a Move associate sentenced to death for a police killing in 1981, whose death sentence was overturned but remains in prison for life. But Mike Africa Jr. feels that their advocacy for the Move 9, which included his parents, was at best ineffective and at worst less than genuine. He told The Guardian, I could never get any support from the leadership to get the Move 9 out. 
Every time we raised the need for legal counsel, it was, no, we don't believe in that, that's not MOVE belief. Then in 2002, MOVE found themselves in the news headlines once again. On the 27th of September, former MOVE supporter John Gilbride was found dead in his car out the front of his house, shot execution style. The 34-year-old had been involved in an ongoing custody battle over Zachary, his son with Alberta, Africa. He had recently been granted partial custody of the child, which Bert had been trying to deny him over accusations of abuse and instability. Earlier that month, John had testified at a Philadelphia family court hearing that a MOVE supporter had been threatening to kill him. Walida Imarisha reported at the time for Black World Today that, quote, the organisation was already on high alert because of the custody ruling, which they had defied, refusing to hand over the child. Their 4504 King Sessing home was fortified a couple of weeks ago, with wooden slats placed over the windows and food stockpiled in the house. MOVE is continuing these precautions because they say this will be used as another excuse to attack MOVE. After the killing of John Gilbride, the fortifications were quietly taken down. Nobody has ever been charged with his murder. Tony and Laurie Allen left MOVE in 2004, and Tony told journalist Monica Yant Kinney, it went from a religious cult to a cult of personality. It's all about self-absorbed narcissism now. It's not just that MOVE lies, it's that MOVE itself is a lie. They told her about interrogation sessions that could last all night, which would be quite light for those who first joined. But Laurie said that the longer you were around, the more intense and tough they got. Quote, You're constantly being told you're racist, you're bigoted, you're not good enough, strong enough or loyal enough. You could never measure up because you've never met John Africa. After they felt you were broken down enough, MOVE members would build you back up again, which Tony says became addictive in some ways. Chuck Sims, one of the MOVE nine and an uncle to Mike Africa Jr., was ousted from MOVE by Bert in 2011 while he was still in prison. The Guardian reported that this was a result of questioning the judgement of the leaders of MOVE. Mike Africa Jr. was born in prison to Mike Davis Sr. and Debbie Davis, two of the MOVE nine sentenced to 30 to 100 years in 1978. He featured in the HBO documentary 40 Years a Prisoner, which I couldn't find a way to watch from Australia. Mike Jr. spent decades fighting for his parents' release and the release of the rest of the MOVE nine, and it's worth listening to his podcast On a Move with Mike Africa Jr. to get an insider's perspective of the organisation and one view of its impact on his generation of members. This view is somewhat disputed, though. More on that shortly. Mike Africa Jr. spoke on his podcast about how one of the MOVE 9, Phil Africa, was suffering from cancer in prison, and MOVE members told him to stop taking his medication, that he needed to have faith in John Africa and nature, and that MOVE members didn't get cancer anyway. And Phil did stop taking the medication, and he died while still imprisoned in January 2015. Mike Jr. recounts a study session where Sue claimed Phil had died before gaining his release because he was a failure. Mike Jr. was gobsmacked to hear this said about a man who gave decades of his life to move and never wavered in his commitment to the organisation even after so many years behind bars. Then when Ramona Africa fell ill, Sue and Alberta didn't allow her to get medical care for months, then tried to have members take her food in hospital that doctors said was unhealthy for her to eat. Mike Jr. recalls Sue claiming that Ramona's lymphoma was all in her head and that she was doing it to herself. Mike Davis Sr. spoke on his son's podcast about how he lost half of his nuclear family while he was in prison and that he received no support or sympathy from what he called the organisation at these times of personal tragedy. In 2019, when his parents were finally released after serving 40 years, Mike Jr. says that they were treated terribly by the leadership, quote, like they were not supposed to come home. He felt that instead of being excited about a development that they had been advocating for over so many years, MOVE people were mad at both him and his parents that they were home. Debbie Davis shared on the podcast that Sue and Bert didn't even visit her for two months, and Mike Jr. says he had a phone call from Alberta where she screamed at him 
about how mad she was that he got his people out and left her people in there. Alberta considered Janine, Janet and Eddie Africa her people, and they were released from prison the following year, in 2019. Delbert and Chuck were then released in 2020. Delbert or Africa passed away from cancer just five months after his release, on the 15th of June 2020. Move claimed that this was a result of his medical conditions being left untreated while he was in prison, and I'll let you consider how this sits with Move beliefs about illness and medical treatment. The final member of the Move 9, imprisoned after the 1978 standoff, was Merle Africa, and he had passed away while still incarcerated in March 1998 after serving two decades behind bars. Some theorise that having the Move 9 out of prison took away one of the few avenues of advocacy that Move members were still publicly involved in, one of the key things that drew supporters to them and gave them legitimacy. By this time, Alberta was living in a nice house, regularly flying internationally and watching plenty of television, a lifestyle far away from the original teachings of John Africa. Returning to spreading the word about his views on living a simple life might have been tricky. And over the last couple of years, more disturbing stories have begun to emerge about the organisation and how it operates, many voiced by those from the second and third generation of MOVE children. On the 35th anniversary of the Osage Avenue bombing, the now Reverend Dr W. Wilson Good Sr. issued another apology for the incident and called on the City of Philadelphia to make a formal apology. In November 2020, the City Council unanimously passed a resolution to do so. The formal apology includes, quote, The Council of the City of Philadelphia hereby apologises for the decisions leading to the devastation of May 13, 1985, and acknowledges the fundamental injustice, cruelty, brutality and inhumanity of the MOVE bombing. It continues, The uprisings in Philadelphia and around the country in the wake of the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, David Jones and other black and brown people killed by the police reflects a reckoning with our country's past and the institutional racism and societal inequality that exists today. Then in April 2021, it was discovered that some of the bones of a child who had died in the 1985 fire were being used in anthropology courses at Princeton and Pennsylvania universities, without the knowledge or permission of relatives. In some ways to respond to the coverage that, although important and shocking, was also delivering a lot of support and solidarity with MOVE as an organisation – In July 2021, Kevin Price started the blog Leaving Move. There he has documented a great deal of Move history, with copies of primary source material, some of which I've referenced in this episode. The blog is an excellent resource, and I really recommend you take a read of it if you're interested in this subject. Kevin wrote, I became involved with Move in 1997 at the age of 14. In 2001, I moved to the Philadelphia area and became much more deeply involved with the group. I've decided to speak out now both to reconcile my own conscience and pave a path to others who might find themselves in similar circumstances. The blog published a group statement on the 2nd of July 2021 from former MOVE members and supporters June Stokes, formerly known as Pixie Africa and daughter of MOVE's Minister for Confrontation Pam Africa, Whit Sims, daughter of Mike and Debbie and sister of Mike Africa Jr., Josh Robbins, formerly known as Josh Africa, Kevin Price, 19-year former MOVE supporter, and Maiga Milborn, 17-year former MOVE supporter. It's linked in the show notes if you'd like to read the full statement, which I recommend. It talks about the signatories telling their stories to the podcast Murder at Ryan's Run, which I would also recommend you listen to, in order to help expose, quote, a pattern of child abuse that June, Josh, Witt and many others have experienced and that is consistent with patterns of abuse that have been ongoing throughout the near 50 years that MOVE has existed. A consistent pattern of direct threats and intimidation against people who want to leave MOVE and tell the truth about their experiences. Some defectors have been threatened and there are many MOVE-related deaths or murders that are very suspicious, namely the 2002 murder of John Gilbride. And, quote, 
a myriad of financial crimes and other ways that MOVE has exploited the political support they receive in order to benefit MOVE's leadership, not Pam and Ramona Africa, the real leaders of MOVE are Sue Africa, Sue Lavino, and Alberta Africa, Alberta Wicker. Former members shared on the Murder at Ryan's Run podcast that underage boys were taken to sleep with sex workers to prove that they weren't gay due to the organisation being incredibly homophobic, and that MOVE children as young as three and four were taught to perform sexual acts on each other. This even had a term in MOVE, which was mooching. The statement has a few requests, which I'll read in full. We are asking journalists to consider this information when reporting on MOVE and to dig more deeply into MOVE's history. We're also asking other current and former MOVE members to speak out about the real history of MOVE in order to protect June, Josh, Witt, and many others who have suffered as a result of being born into MOVE. We recognise that many MOVE members will be uncomfortable with inner circle knowledge being revealed publicly. However, continuing to promote the romanticised past of MOVE creates the conditions that allow for the ongoing suffering of many who were born into MOVE, as well as other victims of MOVE such as the Gilbride family. And we are calling on MOVE members of good conscience to begin to tell the truth about MOVE history, including the events that led up to the 1978 and 1985 confrontations, the treatment of children, and any information related to the harassment and or murder of John Gilbride. Over the following weeks, more former MOVE members and supporters added their names to the statement. Selena and Sarah Robbins, Sims daughters and third-generation MOVE members, Maria Hardy, formerly known as Maria Africa, Rain Robbins, another third-generation former MOVE member, Mario Hardy, a 15-year former MOVE supporter, Pam Africa's ex-husband, Um Harrison, and Bob Massey and Ellie Crompton Massey, former MOVE supporters of over a decade. Whit Sims told journalist Michael Burnley for Billy Penn that she was speaking out because, quote, they took my rights away from me. They violated me. I was manipulated. I was betrayed. And if I can stop this from happening to anybody, that's what my goal is. Josh Robbins told the reporter, without help, we're as good as dead. Move has been lying for 50 years. We really need people's love and support. On the Leaving Move blog, Kevin Price wrestles with the complications of coming out publicly against the organisation. He wrote on the 12th of July 2021, Many have expressed justifiable concern that the truth coming out about Move could cause larger blowback for other liberation struggles and could embolden racists. I share those concerns. He writes about the necessity of Acknowledging all of these potential effects while arguing that survivors must be heard, acknowledged and supported while being given space and resources to heal. And he says that, Within MOVE, revolutionary politics have been used as a smokescreen for the abuse of children, financial corruption and quite possibly murder. Any political blowback as a result of the truth coming out rests at the feet of MOVE leadership and not their victims. This is the stuff that makes this organisation really tricky to write about. And of course, I'm a white lady in Australia, so let's openly acknowledge the limitations of my perspective here. But one thing I do know a bit about is cults, and there's clearly a reason why this group is featuring on this podcast. Kevin continues in the same blog post. To outsiders, MOVE appears to be a black liberation group, or at least a revolutionary organisation with concern for oppressed peoples. For many born into MOVE, MOVE is their captor. And he says that as supporters got closer to the inner workings of MOVE, what looked like a revolutionary group led by Pam and Ramona Africa spirals into an insular cult led by a white woman, Rhea slash Sue, and a black woman, Alberta, who does not like black people and often identifies herself as white. Kevin knows that this will come as a shock to many MOVE supporters who were genuine in their ongoing support of what they understood to be a black liberation organisation. And so much of the media and academic coverage I've read continues to refer to them as such. I think it's worth being clear here that, as is often the case with cultic groups, many involved in the periphery can be gaining a lot from their involvement in terms of positive experiences and doing good work. But it's once you get into the inner circle that things can turn out to be harmful. Those who worked with MOVE over the decades on the Free the MOVE 9 campaigns and other advocacy weren't wasting their time. They were working hard on important issues of racial injustice and police brutality. 
and those issues are clearly all too real. Mike Africa Jr. says on his podcast that all the work that everyone did in the streets and all the supporters who wore shirts and wrote letters and campaigned, none of it was in vain. He says his parents are thriving, and even for Chuck, who sadly passed away in September 2021, he was still grateful to spend his final months outside of prison amongst those who loved him. Mike Jr. still believes in being a revolutionary and protecting people and animals, and is passionate about this work in spite of his disillusionment with some of the ways that MOVE operated. The Leaving MOVE blog is concerned that Mike Africa Jr. is trying to present a sanitised version of MOVE that whitewashes its harms, and his podcast is called On a Move, which is a common greeting for members and supporters. He also still goes by the name Africa, though his parents no longer do. It's not my place to make a judgement on this at all, but it is definitely interesting listening to Mike Jr. battle with some of the issues on his podcast, and he's clear that he's reckoning with a lot of the history in real time as he speaks. From what I've read, even though MOVE is now led by two women, the experience of girls and women in the organisation is also very different to those of boys and men. As with so many high-demand groups, the subjugation of women ends up being central. Maria Hardy, born into MOVE as Maria Africa, wrote a blog post about sex and sexuality within MOVE that includes, quote, Young women were coerced into marriages and began bearing children as soon as they started menstruating. Young girls were not allowed much of a childhood or given the freedom to explore their own wants, needs and desires during their teenage years. By very early ages, pre-adolescent girls were already of the understanding that there was only one option for their lives, to marry a man within the cult and immediately begin popping out babies, devoting all of their time and attention to taking care of a family that they frankly did not have much of a say in creating. Her post continues, Girls were taught that feminism, critical thinking, education, being independent, and having sex solely for pleasure is all, for women, sinful behaviour that will be met with consequences. Maria also wrote that MOVE instilled an intense fear of the outside world and everything in it, and made members believe that if they ventured outside they'd be met with unimaginable suffering and abuse from the outside world. Mike Africa Jr. and his parents, Mike and Debbie Davis, officially left MOVE in September 2021 and spoke to The Guardian about their departure. Debbie spoke about encouraging her daughter Wit to follow through with Alberta Africa's direction that she get married when she was just 16 and the regrets that she has about that. She told reporter Ed Pilkington, I wouldn't be doing this were it not for my daughter. I'm speaking out now to support her and her healing. Sometime around December 2021, Move's website stopped working and now comes up with an error message. It had previously been maintained by Move supporters. There's a reluctance among some to recognise that Move's harms dated back to Vincent Leaphart and John Africa and did not just metastasize under Sue and Bert's leadership. But Kevin Price disagrees with this and sees the issues dating back to the early days. He writes that Vincent's belief system differed from other black liberation movement groups of the day because his understanding of the system that needed to be overthrown was something else entirely. Quote, Leaphart's goal was not to overthrow the US government, but to permanently destroy civilization and take humanity back to a state before our Homo erectus ancestors harnessed fire over a million years ago. Leaphart believed that the system was so evil that anything he needed to do to destroy it, including and especially lying, was morally justified. Mike Davis Sr. said that he had had his doubts about MOVE before the 1978 confrontation that would see him imprisoned for four decades. He had thought about leaving, but decided to stay as his family was all within the organisation. He told The Guardian, I regret I didn't push harder. I was weak. I put most responsibility upon myself for not leaving when I should have. Mike Sr. was just 18 when he joined MOVE, and 22 when he was sentenced. He told Ed Pilkington, We listened to all this bullshit. That's my biggest regret. We didn't have a chance to develop, and before we knew it, we were stuck. His wife Debbie said, In the name of loyalty, I pushed aside even my own instincts. I'm ashamed of it. I'm embarrassed by it, and I'm going to try and heal it. 
She said on Mike Jr.'s podcast that she spent a lot of time regretting her decisions. But she's learned that you can't change the past, so her focus is on the present and on healing. Mike Sr. said that learning from your mistakes is important, and one of his biggest ones was allowing others to do his thinking for him. He regrets this the most when it came to decisions about his own children. Kevin Price believes that what happened in the 1978 confrontation was exactly what Vincent Leapheart wanted to happen. He feels that the intended result, quote, was for MOVE members to go to prison for as long as possible and become martyrs for a cause that MOVE could mobilise others to rally around. And one of the reasons he believes this is that Vincent, quote, instructed the MOVE 9 to request a bench trial instead of a jury trial, nearly guaranteeing their conviction and the longest sentence possible. Those who have spoken out strongly on the Leaving Move blog and on the Murder at Ryan's Run podcast do not do so lightly. June Stokes, Pam Africa's daughter, known as Pixie within the organisation, says that Alberta Africa threatened that she'd be killed if she ever spoke about the things she'd witnessed in Move. She went into hiding before the podcast episodes were released. When June originally found out that Kevin Price was going to be speaking on the Murder at Ryan's Run podcast, she worried about his safety as well. Kevin felt okay since Tony and Laurie Allen hadn't faced any repercussions, and they'd been speaking out since they left in 2004. But as Kevin wrote on his blog, quote, June counted that Rhea and Bert had not lost control over the group at that point. She reiterated that they'd been talking about M1, the underground military faction of MOVE, with increasing frequency, that they were rapidly losing touch with reality and were capable of absolutely anything. June had tried to leave MOVE with her children before, but was told that her children belonged to MOVE. Shockingly, June had her first child at the age of 12 in MOVE under the control of its leaders. June also says that death threats were made against her multiple times, and that she had often been told that MOVE had M1 members working in law enforcement who would protect MOVE at all costs. The idea of this may seem absurd considering MOVE's known attitude towards the police, but a reminder to try to understand MOVE outside of how it positions itself to supporters may be useful here. Many of those who have spoken out about MOVE know that it's difficult for a lot of people to see the organisation outside of the horrors of the 13th of May 1985, and all of them recognise that no matter what, there can never be an excuse for the actions of the authorities on that fateful day. Kevin Price has a view on the incident that you may find interesting. Quote, On May 13th, Philadelphia officials played into Leapheart's apocalyptic vision, with tragic results. Leapheart predicted that the death and destruction on May 13th would help to trigger a global uprising that would eventually topple civilization and lead to an Edenic world. With this last move, Leapheart fulfilled the final pattern of most destructive cults. May 13th was Leapheart's way of ensuring that his name would live on and that he would not have to live up to his own self-created mythology. In support of this view, Kevin posted a copy of a letter sent to Osage Avenue residents from the MOVE organisation in the week before the fire. It starts with these words. You people in this neighbourhood better get yourself ready to evacuate your houses. This city got innocent move people in prison, and before we see our sisters and brothers rot in prison, we'll make these motherfuckers kill us. But we gon' do some killin' too. I'm going to finish this episode on the words of Myga Milbourne, former move supporter of 17 years, and then those of June Stokes, formerly known as Pixie Africa. Both were published on the Leaving Move blog on the 16th of July, 2021. Myga Milbourne writes... What if we said to survivors, I believe you. You owe me nothing. I will work to lift your voice and listen to you. I will do my best to support you. If there is something you need, I will be there to do my best to offer it as you heal and rebuild. What if we said to offenders, your path forward is to fully own your part. You will not be exiled. You will not be shunned. We, your community, know you are capable of the truth and we are here to receive and witness it. We, your community, will work with you to heal so that burden doesn't fall on those that you harmed and so that you can integrate this past and move forward. That can only happen if the truth is acknowledged and responsibility is taken. 
It doesn't mean that there will not be consequences for participating in the abuse or allowing the abuse to occur. It simply means that there is a path left open for redemption. What if we said to the history of MOVE, we will tell this history. We will continue to tell one another about the events, beliefs and people of MOVE and we will tell the whole truth. We will tell about what it felt like to be part of a movement alongside how that hope made many of us blind to the suffering in our midst. We will tell the whole story that to many of us move was a promise, and to those born in it was a prison. It will not be erased, we will tell the whole story. And finally, from June Stokes. I understand that this is all hard to deal with and finding out that move is not what you thought for all this time is devastating. I also understand that a lot of you don't agree with how I went about things. But if something is wrong and hurting people, it must be stopped. That does not mean that I am saying that the government is right. It means that I will not stand for no abuse, no matter who it's from, and I am doing what I have to do. support June Stokes and Maria Hardy start over post-move via their GoFundMe campaigns, which are linked in the show notes. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon or Acast Plus, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was researched and written by me, Sarah Steele, and edited by Matt Brazel. Music was by Joe Gould. you can find support or donate to cult information and family support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode.